0: Last week, we started talking about uh, this new series called Out of Context. And in this series, we're going to look at a handful of Bible passages that people frequently take out of context to mean something that the Bible isn't saying. And tonight, we're going to look at Acts 2.38. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. But while you're turning there, just keep in mind what we talked about during the introduction last week. The fact that we're told to study the Bible by rightly dividing it, that's going to be important this week. That's why it was part of the introduction last week, because it helps us understand the rest of it. Last week's discussion of the three different people groups and the various dispensations are going to come into play as we study the context of this verse this week. So let's read Acts 2.38. It says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of Of the Holy Ghost. And this is a big one. A lot of well meaning Christians get themselves way off base with this one small verse in Acts. And it's easy to understand why. Uh, We understand that getting the Holy Ghost is part of salvation, we understand that repentance is part of salvation. But this verse sure sounds like it's saying that we need to be baptized in order to be saved, at least at first glance. And that's not something that we teach from the Bible. And that's the problem. Often, we can just go with what the first glance of what we think a verse is saying. We have to study it so that we can really understand it. We need to make sure we understand the context so we can understand how this verse should be applied. And like we talked about last week, because we know that we have no business privately interpreting the scripture, we have to look at the context, what's going on around the verse, and compare this scripture with other scripture in the Bible to get a full understanding of what this verse is saying. That's studying. Rather than just breezing over like verses like this when we read them, we have to dig in and study so we can understand what's going on. And that's what we're going to do with this passage tonight. Because remember, there are no errors or contradictions in God's word. If there was, then it wouldn't be God's word. So God's not going to tell you you have to get baptized to be saved in Acts and then tell you you don't have to get baptized to be saved elsewhere. So when we see something in scripture that seems to be an error or a contradiction, it just means we don't understand it yet. And so that's why we need to study. And this one is actually pretty easy to get, which makes it incredibly sad that people get off track here, because misapplying this verse to us today can actually be pretty dangerous. If you start falsely teaching people that they have to be baptized to be saved, then you're going to end up unknowingly sending people to hell because they think they understand salvation when they don't actually understand it. So let's get to the context. Let's start with point number one, the audience. Like we talked about last week, one of the first steps in understanding the context of a verse or passage is to figure out who the audience is. You figure out who the passage is written to, who is hearing what is said in the passage. Peter is obviously the one talking in verse 38. It starts with, Then Peter said unto them, so who's he talking to? Who's the them? And to figure out who the audience is, all we have to do is read the rest of the chapter leading up to verse 38. It's a pretty earth-shattering idea, I know. We don't need to, we're not gonna actually read through the entire chapter, but I have a handful of verses uh, written on your sheet that clearly communicate who the audience is here. Acts 2.5 said, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. So we're talking about Jews who were dwelling at Jerusalem. And if you look back in verse 1 of Acts 2, you'll see that this was during Pentecost. It was a Jewish event that required Jews from all over to come back to Jerusalem. And that's why verse 5 says these were Jews out of every nation under heaven because they came from all over. They all joined forces. They all showed up together in Jerusalem. This is reiterated later if you drop down to verse 10 in Acts 2. It says, and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. So it lists all these different places, and that list is continued from a list that started a verse or two earlier. But it says Jews and proselytes. So the audience here was exclusively Jewish, which includes proselytes, which isn't a word we use very frequently. Anybody know a proselyte? I don't. I don't either. Um, Proselytes are just Gentile people who've converted to Judaism. Uh, They've switched to the Jewish religion. So they're not necessarily Jewish by birth, but by religious practice, they're Jewish. There was a process laid out in the Old Testament for how uh, someone who wasn't born as a Jewish person could become Jewish religiously. So remember last week uh, when we talked about the three different groups of people, Jews, Gentiles, and the church those are the three groups of people that scripture is written to. And this part is clearly addressed to Jews. The audience here is Jewish. And specifically, this whole chapter is just a recorded history of what Peter said to these Jews in, in Jerusalem. He wasn't making some broad statement or speech that directly applies to anyone who's ever lived. He even addresses his speech specifically to Jews. Acts 2.14 says, But Peter... Standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, "Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words." So he's specifically talking to the people who were present, the men of Judea, those who were dwelling at Jerusalem, all those Jews who came from all the different nations to meet in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Peter was exclusively talking to Jewish people who, who showed up here, and that's clear from just reading these handful of verses. In the chapter leading up to the verse we're looking at. But the audience is also clear when you look at the content of what he was talking about. The message Peter's preaching is very specifically for the nation of Israel. Um Acts two, look at verse twenty two. It says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Verse twenty three him being delivered by the Determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So Peter's talking to Jews because the Jewish nation had Jesus crucified and killed. And then drop down to verse 36. It says therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both lord and christ so he's talking to Israel he's saying you crucified him so peter's message essentially boils down to hey Israel you killed your messiah that Jesus guy yeah he was god and you killed him you crucified him even after he proved what he was saying to you with miracles and wonders and he quotes a lot of the old testament Uh, scripture to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah as he kind of goes down through what he's saying. And if you jump down to verse 37, you can see their response to Peter's message. Acts 2.37 says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So they believed what Peter was telling him or what he was telling them. Now they understand that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, but Israel as a nation had him crucified. That information bothers them, and it should have bothered them. That's why Peter was telling them that. It pricked their hearts. And their question to Peter is, what shall we do? It's one of those things where you realize, oh crap, I screwed up. How do I fix it? That's what they were asking. They were trying to figure out what to do from here. Well, Peter tells them what to do in verse 38. Acts 2.38 again says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So verse 38 is simply Peter's response to that question in verse 37. The Jews recognizing that killing Jesus was the wrong thing to do and asking what they should do about them, or about that, Peter tells them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Peter's not telling them how to get saved. He's not preaching the gospel to them. He's simply telling the Jews what to do now that they realize it was wrong for the nation of Israel to have Jesus killed. This context thing isn't that difficult. You just got to take some time and look at the verses around it. Um, Especially here, it's actually pretty easy to get. You just have to read what's going on around the verse that you're looking at. And having quickly gone through the 37 verses prior to verse 38 makes 38 a whole lot easier to understand. And that quick review of the chapter alone, man, that's enough to prevent us from thinking verse 38 says anything about us having to be baptized for our salvation. Verse 38 was written to Jews, and it was specifically written to Jews who asked what they should do with the realization that they killed their Messiah. But let's look at what Peter tells them to do, because as we look at the rest of this verse, um, it'll, be, it'll be pretty clear that what he's talking about is very different than what we understand as the gospel. Um, so let's look at number two, the commands. Because when, when they ask him, what shall we do? He gives them two commands. And the first one is letter A, repent. And the word repent just means to turn away from something. We see this word used all throughout the Bible. We often think of repenting as turning away from our sins and that's definitely one way the word repent is used in scripture. But don't let that limit our understanding of what it means to be repent. even Or to repent, to be repent, yeah. Uh, to be repentant, To you know. Even God repented of things. Not from sin, obviously. God's holy, he he never has sin. He couldn't turn away from from sin if he wanted to because he was never facing it. I think of when the Bible said that that it repented God that he made man, which eventually led to Noah's flood, which wiped out most of mankind. But the clearest example of God repenting, in my opinion, can be found in Exodus 32. Uh, when Moses comes down off the mountain with God's commandments in hand, he finds the rest of Israel all dancing and worshiping the golden calf that they just made. Uh, like, like God just brought them out of slavery in Egypt and they respond by making a golden cow so they could worship it. Uh, and as you can imagine, that peeved God off. He wasn't happy about that. He told Moses, like, look, dude, step, step back, because I'm going to wipe all these guys out, um, and I don't want you to get caught in it. His plan was just to wipe out Israel and start over with Moses and his family. But Moses talks him out of it. And Exodus 32:14 says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. So God said, okay, Moses. I won't do that. He turned away from what he was about to do and he went, he went a different route. So even God can repent from things. So we can't only think about repenting from our sins as part of the gospel every time we see the word repent show up in scripture. Though like I said, many times we see a command to repent, it will be talking about the gospel. For example, Mark one fourteen and 15 says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So sure, repentance from our sin is part of receiving God's gift of salvation, but not every mention of repentance has to do with the gospel. And I bring that up because this command in Acts 2.38 to repent doesn't have to do with the gospel, at least not directly. We know that because of what they were being told to repent of. And the Jews, as a nation, killed Jesus, like I said. And these Jews that Peter's message convicted were told to repent of that. And that just means that they were to admit that killing him was wrong and turn away from it. Peter wasn't telling them how to be saved from their sin and eternal separation from God and hell. Look at verse 40 of Acts 2. It says, And with many other words, he did testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. He was telling them how to save themselves from this untoward generation. He was telling them as a group of Jews how to separate themselves from the religious leaders who pushed to have Jesus killed. Because those leaders, if you remember in the Gospels, man, they got everyone on their side. The mob of people at Jesus' trial demanding that he be crucified. You know, Pilate even offered, do you want this murderer back or do you want Jesus back? And they're like, no, we want the murderer, crucify Jesus. They were all yelling about it, man. And now that they were convicted by the realization that that was the wrong thing to do, Peter tells them to repent, to turn away from that decision and to turn away from the leaders who pushed for it. And they were to demonstrate that repentance with the second command, be baptized. And like I said at the beginning, man, this is where, this is where many people get the idea that baptism is what saves you, that the water you get dunked in somehow magically washes your sins away. And we'll see why that's not the case, even during this transitional time in history that we're, we see going on in Acts 2. Um, even looking at the results of them getting baptized will, will clue us in on that. We'll see that in the next point, um, but that'll make it clear that their sins aren't being washed away. But what we need to understand about water baptism is that it doesn't take away sins. The Bible is clear on that. First Peter 3:21 says, "The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us." And that parentheses is real important. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism, which is called here a figure or a picture, it doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. The Bible's clear on that. It's just the answer of a good conscience toward God. And that's all water baptism is that biblical churches today practice. Baptism is just a step of obedience that outwardly demonstrates to other believers that you've been spiritually given new life by Jesus on the inside. It pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We have a comprehensive lesson on baptism in our discipleship curriculum but in order to be biblically baptized, y- you have to already be saved. That's that's the long and short of it. You have to already have experienced the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in your life before you can picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ through water baptism. Um, and the Bible is clear on that. Look in Acts eight when Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts eight thirty six through thirty eight. Verse 36 says, And as they went on their way, they came unto a, certain, unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? So what's keeping me from being baptized? Verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then verse 38, And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. So the Ethiopian eunuch could only be baptized because he believed in his heart and confessed with his mouth that Jesus was Lord. Philip says, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Those are the two biblical requirements to be saved, as found in Romans, Romans 10. And because both of those requirements had already been fulfilled, meaning the Ethiopian eunuch had already been saved, then he could be baptized to outwardly demonstrate what had already happened to him spiritually. That's all biblical water baptism is. And, and like I said, or like I started talking about already, Peter isn't telling anyone how to be saved from hell here. Acts 2.40 again, he says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. He's telling them what they need to do if they don't want to be dragged along with the religious leaders who pushed to have Jesus killed. They were to turn from those who had killed, killed Jesus and this act of baptism here would have demonstrated that separation because the act of baptism is that, that, that Peter's describing is actually very similar to what John the, Baptist, John the Baptist was having people do when he started preaching about Jesus' coming. And that made the Jewish leaders mad when, when John the Baptist did it because they felt it was undermining their religious authority. So when the Jews during Peter's day realized that they killed their Messiah and separated themselves from those same leaders who were pushing for his death, them being baptized like this, oh, that would have got those those Jewish leaders fuming. Uh, man, they they see that and that's just a clear outward demonstration that that was a wrong thing that we participated in. I don't want anything to do with that anymore, so I'm going to separate myself and, and, and wash myself from that. There's a lot of uh, pictures with, with baptism washing, but it, it doesn't actually take away sins. And it would have been con- clearly demonstrated through, through doing this. Who was willing to separate themselves from the old Jewish leaders who didn't want the Messiah to usurp their perceived authority? So these Jews were told to repent and be baptized. But let's look at what Peter said the results of them following those two commands would be, and that's number three, the results. And the first result that Peter mentions is the remission of sins. You know, be baptized for the remission of sins. And too frequently we we read that and we don't stop to think about what remission actually is. When something is in remission, it's not actually gone. When something's in remission, it's, it's just dormant. It's not active. A lot of people have, have to deal with diseases that don't have a cure and that don't go away. And those d- diseases might not fully go away, but if you can get them to go into remission, then at least you don't have to deal with the symptoms of it for a bit. Tricia, for example, has cancer, but her cancer is in remission, and we pray every day that it stays that way. She doesn't have to deal with the effects of having cancer because it's not doing anything. All those procedures she went through made it stop growing and start shrinking. And last we checked, it's still shrinking, praise the Lord. But it's still there for now. It's in remission. Maybe someday it will totally be gone, but that's not what remission is. So when we're talking about sin, man, we can't make the same mistake of thinking that the remission of sins is the same thing as the redemption from sins. Because all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, those were for the remission of sins. Hebrews 9:22 says, "And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission." So the goal of those sacrifices was remission. So God required the blood of animals to be shed so the remission of sins could happen. That's why doing all of that would allow the Israelites to have God's blessing, because their sins, with their sins in remission, they wouldn't have to be punished for them. They wouldn't have to deal with the full effects of their sin. But those sins don't just go away because they sacrificed animals. Uh, Hebrews ten four says, "For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins." So something else was required if people's sins could ever fully be forgiven. Uh, and and if if they expected them to be forgiven forever. As sinners, we need our sins to be dealt with once and for all if we're ever going to be able to enjoy the personal relationship with God that he designed humanity to have with him. And the blood of bulls and goats isn't going to do that. We need the blood of Jesus. And it's it's true that the blood of Jesus is able to remit sins. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of, of sins. So that's true. But Jesus' blood is capable of so much more than than just the remission of sins. Hebrews 9:15 says and for this cause he is the mediator of the new testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So Jesus' blood is capable of redeeming the transgressions, not just putting sins into remission which is so much more powerful than simple remission. This redemption leads to the promise of eternal inheritance. It's not just a temporary thing. It's not something that that he has to do over and over again. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 12 puts it this way. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all and every priest standeth daily ministering and often t- offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Yeah, praise the Lord, man. So that one sacrifice of Jesus Christ is able to wipe out every single sin you could ever commit, if you allow it to. His one offering of his body is enough to have complete and total victory over sin which again is so much more than simple remission. The results of the gospel of Jesus Christ are so much more powerful than the result of this repent and be baptized thing that we see in Acts 2.38. Because again, Peter's not preaching the gospel here. He's simply answering the question of what this group of Jews should do now that they realize that Jesus was their Messiah. But that's not the only result we see in this verse. We also see letter B, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. And this one's a little less clear on exactly what's being said. What is the gift of the Holy Ghost? Is the gift of the Holy Ghost referring to the Holy Ghost as a gift? Or is it referring to getting a gift that comes from the Holy Ghost? I'm honestly not sure. Um, But our understanding of spiritual gifts, which are gifts from the Holy Ghost, are only given to people who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. So I think it's a fair assumption that he's saying that they'll receive the Holy Ghost if they repent and get baptized because you can't experience a gift of the Holy Ghost, at least as we understand them, without the Holy Ghost. But again, look at the language that's being used here in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So ye, that's that pronoun that's, that's always plural. So he's referring to the group collectively receiving the Holy Ghost, but it's based on the actions of the individuals, every one of you um, so which is that's very different than how we get the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit on an individual basis based on your personal decision to follow Christ. but what Peter's talking about is this group getting the Holy Ghost based on each of their decisions uh to to repent and be baptized but regardless of you know all this nuance and all what all these Specific words could mean. You know, the only time we see in Scripture anyone receiving the Holy Ghost as tied to their baptism is here in Acts chapter 2. All kinds of people receive the Holy Ghost, but outside of Acts 2, it's never tied to baptism uh, in any way. In Acts 8, in those verses on your sheet 12 through 17, uh, you see a group of Samaritan believers. They're unable to get the Holy Ghost even after they're baptized until the apostles laid hands on them. You can see a similar story to that in Acts 19. Then in Acts 10, there's a, there's a story where you see a group of Gentile believers get the Holy Spirit before they got baptized. And so there's a lot of different order to things and stuff like that. And my point is you see a lot of variance in how things are presented in the book of Acts and the order in which things happen. This was a transitional time. Remember last week we talked about dispensations? Much of the book of Acts is during the transition from the dispensation of the law to the dispensation of grace. Because the book starts out with God still wanting to reach the nation of Israel exclusively, but as the Jews continue to reject him and his apostles, he transitions to reaching the Gentile nations with the gospel. He shifts from trying to build a physical and spiritual kingdom with Israel to solely trying to build a spiritual kingdom with anyone who wants to be a part of it. And this passage in Acts 2 is when he's still working, up, or working to bring the nation of Israel back to him. He was willing to forgive the fact that they wanted Jesus crucified. He, he still wanted to build that kingdom with Israel. And God, through Peter, was asking them to reject the religious leaders that led them away from Jesus, their king, and to accept him as their Lord and Savior. And we see a bunch of individual Jews accept that at the beginning of the book, but as a nation, the nation of Israel continually and collectively continue to reject Jesus. And that's when God shifts his focus uh, away from the nation of Israel because of their decisions. In fact, God had to do some pretty weird miracles to prove to his apostles like Peter that he was shifting his focus to the Gentiles. And because this time period was so transitional, we aren't surprised that that we see God working in different ways than he works today. Because again, it was a transitional time. And remember, Acts is a history book. It's written as a record of events. It's, written to communi- it's not written to communicate doctrine like Paul's letters to churches were when Paul was telling Christian believers how to act and what to do and how to run their churches. The book of Acts was just a record of, of things that happened. So we can get out of bounds pretty quickly if we take something we see in the book of Acts and treat it like it's doctrine when it's not supported by other clearer presentations of doctrine that we see in Scripture especially with stuff revolving around the Holy Spirit because the New Testament doctrine on the Holy Spirit is is clear. We automatically receive the Holy Spirit at our salvation, not our baptism. Galatians 3.14 says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the only thing required for you to get the Holy Spirit is your faith, your faith in Jesus Christ No works are necessary. If that sounds familiar, that's because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Baptism is a work, lest any man should boast. We get the Holy Spirit when we give ourselves to Jesus in faith. We don't have to get baptized, which like I said is a work, in order to receive the Holy Spirit. We should get baptized, but that's for other reasons because like I said, baptism's important. It's the first step of obedience in your growth with God. It's the first small thing he asks each of us to do. And it provides a physical illustration to the people around you. It shows what Jesus has done in your life when you asked him to save you from your sins. He gave you new life and baptism just shows that to everyone else. But receiving the Holy Spirit is way more important. So thank goodness it's not actually tied to anything that we do because Humans find a way to screw everything up. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So after we believe, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, not after you're baptized. He's the earnest of our inheritance, meaning he's just the first part of what God promises to us. That's why we can count on our salvation being eternally secure. And we, because we get the Holy Spirit when we accept Jesus' gift of salvation, we get him immediately and permanently. It's not tied to things you do. And that's very different from what we see Peter preaching in the book of Acts. That doesn't mean Peter was wrong, It just means that the message was different to that group of Jews in Acts 2 than the message is for us today. That's all it means. And understanding the context of Acts 2 helps uh, helps us make sure that we don't misapply what Peter was saying as though he was saying it to us. Remember that phrase we talked about last week? The whole Bible's written for us, but it's not all written to us. Acts 2 wasn't written to us. It was Peter speaking to a group of Jews uh, who were trying to figure out what to do because they killed their Messiah. That's the long and short of it. So as we wrap up tonight, man, because this was a trans- during the transition from the law to grace, Jesus had just died to pay for the sins of anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. But he was still exclusively reaching the nation of Israel through his apostles at this point. And yes, the church sort of started here at the end of Acts 2. Acts 2.47 even uses the word church But it was a Jewish church. Gentiles don't start getting saved until Acts 8, right after the Jewish leadership martyrs Stephen for preaching a message uh, similar to what Peter was preaching here in Acts 2. And at that point, God shifts from dealing with Israel as a nation to dealing with individuals. And the gospel becomes fully available to the Gentiles. Praise the Lord. And can you see how failing to study this passage and failing to understand the context can lead you off track here in a number of ways? This is the primary verse that people go to when they believe that baptism is required for salvation. Couple that with the fact that some other verses which define the necessity uh, to already be saved in order to be baptized, uh, some of those are actually removed from modern translations of the Bible Connect those two things together and you find yourself thinking baptism has some magical power to wash away your sins when when it doesn't. It's just tap water that you're getting dunked in. It's just a picture. It's an important one, but it's just a picture. All it takes is a little bit of study to understand the context and you can keep yourself from being way out in left field on a single verse of scripture like this. And that can keep you grounded in your faith and in your understanding of the Bible and that's ultimately what we want. So when you get to weird verses like this in Scripture, what, it, what, it, what do you do with them? What's your first reaction? Is your first response to just take what you think it means at face value and, and just run with that? Hopefully not, because you end up believing a lot of weird stuff if that's you. More likely, it's your first response to, it, may, it might be your response to just ignore that, it, that because it was weird and keep reading like, huh, that's strange. Let's keep going like, and just never take time to understand it. That's, that's most Christians, but that shouldn't be true of us, because if your response to difficult, passage difficult passages in Scripture is to just ignore them, then you're missing out on some incredibly, uh, incredibly cool opportunities to learn some truth. Don't do that, man. We got to study. That's what our first response should be. Our first response should be to do what we did tonight, study it. When you see a difficult passage, man, roll up your sleeves, dig in, see what you can learn, but we don't have to do this stuff alone either man, we have each other to talk about all this stuff that we're reading and studying. And when you don't know the answer to something, don't pretend like you do. Just to say, I don't have the answer. What do you think this is? I don't know. Let's look at it. Like, that that's part of the, that's the cool part of being part of a church. We're we are all in this together. And in that way, man, we can all benefit from what each other is learning and reading. And aside from that, man, we have discipleship in other classes that that'll help you tackle more difficult passages in Scripture and help you get better at studying the Bible. But at the end of the day, we don't don't want to just ignore difficult passages because we want to know what God says. And if we're willing to study, even just a little bit, we can know so much more of what he says than we could if we're just reading and not taking the time to study. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much just for, man, the clarity of your word. And even, even at times where, it seems like the Bible's saying something weird, God. We have the confidence and we have the faith that that you wrote it. These are your words we're looking at. and We know you're not the author of confusion, so you're not going to put contradicting statements or untrue statements in the Bible. And so we just thank you for being able to take that at, 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 at faith, Lord, and just understanding that, that if we're just willing to study, then, then the Bible will make more sense. And sure, there's places in the Bible that that nobody really might understand fully and we don't intend to understand the entire Bible fully. If we did, then then we'd be as smart as you and, and we know that's not true, God. Um, but God, we just pray that, man, as we grow and as we learn, we can just find difficult passages like this and study them so that we can understand more about you and who you are so that you can guide and shape us to look more and more like your son and conform us to his image, Lord. We love you so much and pray that we just, Learn to tackle these things and learn to talk about them. Learn to talk about them together so that we can help each other and edify each other as we learn and grow together. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.